Hey everybody, welcome to the Fearlessly Authentic Podcast. Episodes aimed at presenting authentic truth in a fearlessly authentic way. We're right in the middle of the study of the life of Joseph. And today, we're finishing up the second part of the message on grace, a study in the life of Judah. At the end of the last message, we asked the question, is anyone too broken for grace? We're going to answer that question today. Here it is, part two, grace. Maybe people are too broken for grace. How can Judah receive grace? This is a wicked man. He sold his brother. He wanted to kill his brother. He lied to his father, even when his father's heart was broken. And for all these years, he kept this. He went and made wrong friendships. He got involved with the wrong woman. He had kids and he didn't parent his kids right. His first son died because he was wicked. His second son died with his wicked. His third son's on the road. He's neglective to his responsibility to Tamar. He engages in prostitution. And when his daughter-in-law does the very thing that he does, he wants her burned to save his face. Maybe there are some people who are too broken for grace. How could God forgive a man like Judah? Maybe the thing that you did in your past is too great to be forgiven. Maybe you're right. And maybe you just need to continue listening to this message. Point number two. Look at verse 26 of chapter 38. So verse 25 says that they bring Tamar forth and send her to her father-in-law. And she says, by the man who these are, I'm with child. And she said, discern, I pray thee, whose are this signet, bracelets, and staff? Verse 26, and Judah acknowledged them and said, she hath been more righteous than I, because that I gave her not to Sheila, my son. And he knew her again no more. Here's my second thing. There is, by the way, there is no one who is too broken for grace. But when you get to be someone like Judah, or maybe you're in a place like this, you need to understand this principle. Discipline is often an expression of grace. Discipline is often. Wouldn't it be great if the story was the fact of, and Judah did all these things, and he came to a camp meeting, and he got uh, told a, a sad little story, and he came down front, and he prayed, and his tears were running down his eyes, and, and God wiped everything away, and he was good to go. Wouldn't that be great if that's the way the story went? But Judah wouldn't have to confess to anything. He would just have to say, Dear God, I'm sorry, and I'm good to go. And all of his problems would have went away. Wouldn't you love a God like that? Wouldn't you love a God like that? Just make all my problems go away? Like getting saved makes all my problems go away. Getting saved means I don't have to face the consequences. Getting saved. See, God's discipline in exposing us for who we really are, and sometimes to the point of doing it publicly because we won't listen privately, is an expression of his grace. Judah is the self-righteous one who thinks, oh, everything's going to go well, and I'm going I'm to be rid of Tamar. I don't have to have my son marry this, this girl. She's the fault anyway. At this point, he still blames Tamar for all the things that are going on. And he's ready to have her head shaved and burned in public because of it while he's doing the very same thing. And we know the rest of the story. It's fun to read this when you know the end of the story. You're like, oh, Judah, you're about to get it. She has evidence on you. She possessed irrefutable evidence of Judah's secret sin. And she exposed him. He was exposed. God allowed him to be exposed. He used the body of a harlot in secret, but publicly condemned his daughter-in-law for behaving like one. We call that hypocrisy. But here's the thing. This whole episode 
finally brought Judah to a turning point in his life. Had Judah not been publicly exposed, he'd continue on just the way he was. But this public exposure made him say this. He acknowledged and said, She has been more righteous than I, because that I gave her not to Shelah, my son. He knew that all of this was because he was disobedient. There was an ounce of what Jacob had taught him as a young boy still flowing to his head and reminding him from time to time that he was someone owned by someone else, that Jehovah was his God and he was following the God of Judah himself. He was not following the God of Abraham, Isaac, and his father Israel. He was not following that, but he knew that there was a calling and he knew there was a reason and there was something there. And when it comes down to you, he was publicly exposed. When all of the, all of the things fell down, he was like, she's more righteous than I. I didn't fulfill my duty. He could no longer hide behind his pillar of community personal persona. He'd been exposed as a hypocrite, an idolater, a swindler, a liar. Here's some things I take from this. You can run from God, but you can't outrun him. You can run from God just like Judah was trying to run from God. No one's too broken for grace. The problem is we try and see how broken we can get. How broken can I get? How far can I take this? Do not presume upon the grace of God. Please do not take Judah's story as an excuse to go out and to do whatever you want and then say that, well, God will bring me back because God may just take you out. There's one Judah. There's millions of people who don't come back. One Judah. Millions of people who never come back. Here's the second thought, I think, from this idea of the discipline is often the expression of God's grace. The purpose of discipline is not to pay you back. Don't we think that sometimes? Discipline, oh, I'm getting paid back for what I did. I'm getting paid back. Boy, he's paying me back hard. The, the purpose of discipline is not to pay you back. It's to bring you back. He brings discipline in your life to bring you back, not to pay you back. Grace takes our greatest mistakes and makes them the ingredients of God's greatest blessings. He takes our greatest mistakes and uses them as ingredients in his greatest blessings. And the last thing I see here is that grace turns tragic failures into spiritual champions. He can take a tragic failure and turn him into a spiritual champion. Discipline is often an expression of grace. Now, uh, you know, I don't believe in easy believism. I don't believe you just pray a prayer and then everything's okay. I believe that the fruit of your life reflects whether there was sincerity in the prayer that you prayed. I think the prayer is a start. I think the prayer is, an, is, is the entry point. I think that's where, you know, I, I know I'm going to heaven. If I pray that prayer and die that day, I'm going to heaven. So don't, don't confuse that. But I think the proof of that prayer is in the life of the believer. You're going to have a hard time convincing me that you're a saved individual on your way to heaven, living like the devil, and don't care about the, the results of it. You have a hard time convincing me that. Because everything in the Bible says that that is not what takes place in the life of a believer. Now, we struggle, and we have problems, so don't think that we're all perfect and everything. But you can't tell me you can live totally apart from God and say, well, yeah, I prayed a prayer, and I'm good to go. So the proof of Judah's turning point is in how he lives from this point forward. Is there any proof? Is there any proof? And I think there is. And here's my third point. Grace is predictably unpredictable. You're going to see here in the next few minutes some remarkable things about Judah. At this point, Judah seems to move back home after this whole thing going on in chapter 38. It seems from this point he, he leaves this place and goes back home to live along his brothers and his father Jacob. He put himself back under the authority that he rejected years ago. He doesn't like the authority still. He still, he still knows that now Benjamin's the favorite. Things haven't changed in Jacob. You're going to find out in the, in, the, in the series that we're continuing on that Jacob doesn't change much throughout all of this. 
He kind of maintains the same trickster that he always was. So Jacob is the same thing. But Judah is saying, I'm not worried about Jacob anymore. I have been exposed. I have, I've seen someone who is more righteous than me. I just need to go back to the place where I got off this boat. I'm going to go back home. So he goes back home. Though change, he doesn't really seem ready to come clean with everything. Because you would think that if Judah was, was really ready at this point, he'd have come home and said, uh, Dad, we need to have a talk. Oh, okay, son. What, what can we talk about? Well, you remember, well, I don't know now. 20 years ago, that little event with Joseph. Oh, don't talk to me about Joseph. Don't talk to me about I can't take it in my heart, you know. Don't talk to me about him. Well, I masterminded the whole thing, and we sold him as a slave. And then we lied to you and said we killed him, or that he died, but he didn't die. I mean, he, he never had that conversation at this point. So he came back home, and he was in that process of like, I'm not ready to go there yet. And don't, don't we all get there sometimes? Like, we, there's certain things God reveals to us, and we're like, okay, okay. And then he's like, I think you need to get this right. And we're like, oh, I'm not ready for that. And it's okay. That's a process that's going on. It's a process in his life. Do we see anything else? But I don't think God's finished with him. Now, the story goes on, and we're going to talk about this story that uh, we, we leave him, and we go to Joseph, and Joseph, you know, he's with Potiphar. And all this is taking place at the same time that Genesis 38 is taking place, okay? Genesis 38 covers the whole time of Joseph's life there in captivity. Judah comes back, and then he's, he's, with, he's with dad, and there's a famine in the land. And you know at this point that Joseph has already been raised to be the, the famine uh, guard of Egypt. He is, he is, he is the dream uh, revealer, and he, he saved grain for seven years. In the years of famine, he's dealing it out, and he's Israel, uh, Egypt's feeding themselves and making a lot of money because everyone doesn't have grain. And so Jacob and his family, they run out of food, and they know that there's food in Egypt. And so Jacob sends his ten boys, now Judah's involved in that, down to go get some food. And so when they go down there, Joseph recognizes them. He asks them if they have a brother or how their father is. Yeah, is, is there anyone else? And they're like, yeah, we have another brother. The whole thing goes on, and there's this thing going on. Simeon is left. He says, you're spies. You're going to have to leave one here and bring me the other brother in order to prove that you're not spies. So they, he, he picks Simeon, which is interesting because I would have picked Judah. Because I, Joseph would have heard that all of the conversation going on. He probably knew that Judah was the mastermind. <laughs> I'd have picked Judah. So, okay, okay, someone's going to pay. Judah's going to pay. But remember, Joseph decided that I'm not going to make them pay. Joseph decided that a long time ago. On his way down to Egypt, he decided, I'm not going to do that self-destructive, they're going to pay me back. I'm going to leave this with God. So he asked for Simeon to stay. They go back home and they say, hey, Dad, we got to go back. We got to take Benjamin. That's the only way to save Simeon. He goes, Simeon who? Why did you tell him that you had a brother? Why didn't you just lie? They're like, Dad, Dad, Simeon's there. He's like, I don't care. He'll have to figure it out himself. And he left Simeon there. It wasn't until they ran out of that food that Reuben comes to dad and says, Dad, you remember what we told you? We're all about to starve. We need to take Benjamin back. And he says, get away from me. I don't want to talk to you. He's, Reuben never regains favor with his father. And if you have an affair with your father's wife or concubine, you're probably not going to have a great relationship after that either. So it still goes on a little longer. And then it gets where it's really bad. And Judah steps up. Judah steps here. Go to over to chapter 43. Chapter 43, and look at verse 8. So Judah steps up and says unto Israel his father, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and thou and also our little ones. I will be surety for him. Of my hand shalt thou require him. If I bring him not unto thee and set him before thee, then let me bear the blame forever. For except we had lingered, surely now we had returned the second time. Judah takes full responsibility for protection of the new favored son. Remember, Benjamin was the new favored son getting all the same benefits that Joseph got before, and the boys still didn't feel the love of their father. Yet at this time, Judah's like, I will make sure he comes back. Total change in Judah's outlook. Total change in Judah's like, I will be the down payment. 
you can do to me whatever you want if I don't bring him back. I will bear the blame. Interesting. He takes full responsibility. So they go down and they take Benjamin. And Joseph has this plan where he feeds them all and gives Benjamin a bunch of food and then sends them on their way, puts double their money in there. But then he says, put a little silver cup, put my silver cup in Benjamin's sack. They get on their way a little bit. The guards come. They rip open the sack. The guys who have the silver cup, how could you steal this cup? Whoever had the silver cup will become a slave. And who was it? It's in Benjamin's, Benjamin's bag. And you could just imagine Judah. Ah! I can't do this again. This can't happen again. Right? And so they bring them all back. And Joseph's like, you're all free to go. I don't, I don't, I don't accuse you of anything. But Benjamin's going to stay here with me for the rest of his life. Now, say, why was Joseph so cruel? I think Joseph was like, you know what? I don't know that these boys aren't going to do the same thing to him. I'm going to preserve him. I'm going to preserve him. But if you look over at chapter 44 and look at verse 18, the pronouncement had just come from Joseph that whoever has the cup is going to stay with me. Or Judah says in verse 18, Judah came near unto him and said, Oh, my Lord, listen to his words. This is one of the most, most uh, heartfelt words you'd ever hear from Judah. And, and you'd be surprised that it's from Judah, knowing everything we know about him. He says, Oh, my Lord, let thy servant, I pray thee, speak a word into my Lord's ears, and let not thine anger burn against thy servant, for thou art even as Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have ye a father or a brother? And ye said unto my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age, a little one, and his brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother, and his father loved him. And thou saidest unto thy servant, Bring him down unto me, that I may set my eyes upon him. And we said unto my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. And thou sayest unto thy servants, Except your youngest brother come down with me, you shall no more see, you see my face no more. And it came to pass, when we came up unto thy servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, Go again and buy us a little food. And we said, We cannot go down if our youngest brother be with us. Then we will go down, for we may not see the man's face, except our youngest brother be with us. And the servant, my father, said, You know that my wife bare me two sons. And here's his heart. And the one went out for me, and I said, Surely he is torn in pieces, and I saw him not since. Now, I can't read into the emotion here, but I can just think that Ju Judah is... It's pretty emotional at this point. He's telling the story of the pain that he caused on his own father. Verse 30, 29, Ye take this also from him, and mischief befall him. Ye shall bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. Now therefore, when I come to thy servant my father, and the lad be not with us, seeing that his life is bound up in the lad's life, it shall come to pass, when he seeth that the lad is not with us, that he will die, and thy servant shall bring down the gray hairs of thy servant our father with sorrow to the grave. For thy servant became surety for the lad unto my father, saying, If I bring him not unto thee, then I shall bear the blame to my father forever. Now therefore I pray thee, let thy servant abide instead of the lad, abondment to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brethren. For how shall I go unto my father, and the lad be not with me, lest preadventure, or perhaps I see the evil that shall come on my father." He's willing to give himself as a slave to make sure his father doesn't face the death of his second favorite son. He says that his life is wrapped up in his son, but I can't do to him what I did to him before. He doesn't say that, but that's what's going on in his head. I cannot bear to do to him what is haunting me all this time. She is more righteous than me is ringing in his head. She is more righteous than me. I got to be a righteous. I can't do this. I gave, I gave surety, Joseph. Take me. I don't matter to him. He won't die if I don't come back. And I think, I, think, I think I deserve this. I think I'm the one who should stay. I'm the one who masterminded Joseph. I'm the one who caused all the grief going to Jacob. I'm the one who did all this. Take me. I can't do this to my father again. That's quite a change. Because grace is predictably unpredictable. I just want to turn one more place and then we'll be done. Chapter 49. Now in chapter 49, Jacob's dying. If you don't know the story, spoiler alert, Joseph lets, lets them all come live with him. He reveals who he is. He was a test, and nobody had to be a slave. They all lived in the best part. 
But eventually Jacob comes to the point where he dies, and he has to name the firstborn. Now you think, oh, that's Reuben. Reuben's the firstborn. But in this culture, the father decided who was the firstborn. Now, out of the 12 sons, if you were a, a betting person, I know we're in a Baptist church, but if you were a betting person, who do you think gets firstborn? What's his name? Come on, say it. Joseph. Well, I know the end of the story. J- say Joseph. It's jo- you would think he would pick Joseph, right? I mean, that's who I thought he would pick, right? That's who you think he would pick, right? Joseph. Notice what he says here in verse 3. He, he gathers him and he says, Reuben, thou art my firstborn, by might and the beginning of my strength, or my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Now, that, that's good so far. He's probably thinking, hmm, I think I got that. You're unstable as water. Ooh. Do you ever get that sinking feeling? Thou shalt not excel, because thou wentest unto thy father's bed, then defilest thou it. He went up into my couch. It's the first time he's ever said anything about this. First time. <laughs> He waits till it's time for the first one. He says, Reuben, you're a great guy. Man, you got such potential. But you're unstable as water, and you'll never excel because you defiled my bed. You had an affair with my third or fourth concubine at the time that my best wife died. You aren't getting firstborn. He goes to Simeon Levi. He says, your instruments of cruelty are in thy habitations. O my soul, come thou not into thy secret and into thy assembly, mine honor. Be not thou united, for in thy anger thou slew a man, and in thy self-will they dig down a well. Cursed be, thy, cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, for their wrath, for it was cruel. I'll divide them in Jacob and scatter them. You remember, Simeon and Levi, they're the ones who wiped out that whole village. When Dinah was accosted by that one man, they wiped out a whole village. So they're not getting it. You could just think Judah thinking, <laughs> because by this time, somebody had to tell Jacob how Joseph is still alive. Okay? Now, it's not written in Scripture, but I kind of believe it was Judah who came home and said, Dad, we do need to have a talk now. Joseph's alive. So Judah and Jacob have had this conversation. Jacob knows it was Judah who masterminded the whole plan because the other brothers were like, we didn't want to do it, but Judah made us do it. You know how brothers are, right? It wasn't us, but it was our brother. He, if it wasn't for him, we, we wanted to save him. Reuben's like, hey, I'm unstable as water, but I was coming back. So Judah steps up, and he's, he's prepared for his father to say, you're, you, you're, not, you're not the firstborn. Judah, thou art whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From thy prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion, as an old lion, whom shall rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from beneath, between his feet, until Shiloh comes. Shiloh is another name for Christ. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be, binding his foal into the vine and his ass colt unto the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with white and wine and his teeth white with milk. Zebulun shall dwell at, or it goes on and talks about Zebulun. You know what he just gave to Judah there? You're my firstborn. Your brothers are going to praise you and bow down before you. In fact, through your line, the Messiah will come. The mastermind of Joseph's betrayal. The one who feigned comfort to his father when he could have removed it all right at the beginning. The one who made unwrong, wrong friendships. The one who married out of God's will. The one who didn't train his children right. The one who engaged in prostitution. The one who tried to almost kill his daughter-in-law for the sin that he was... This is the guy you're going to pick? And Jacob, on the inspiration of God, goes, yeah, he's the guy. Why? Because grace is predictably unpredictable. It's predictably unpredictable. In the end, it cannot be said that he found grace because Jacob never went looking, or Judah never went looking for it. By the contrary... Grace found him. Grace found him. And and though this story took more than 20 years to unfold, God continues to weave the theme of grace 
in the story of mankind. And, and here's my last thought. Judah reminds us that grace is not reserved for good people. Grace is not reserved for good people. Grace underscores the goodness of God. Let me pray for you. When I think of the life of Judah, I think of the old hymn, Grace Greater Than Our Sin, Marvelous Grace of Our Loving Lord, Grace That Exceeds Our Sin and Our Guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mountain poured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt, Grace, Grace, God's Grace, Grace That Will Pardon and Cleanse Within, Grace, Grace, God's Grace, Grace That Is Greater Than All Our Sin. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I trust that you'll accept Him today, that you'll accept the grace that is available through the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you know Jesus Christ and there's something in your past that's holding you back, I pray that you will ask God to help you to receive the grace that will help you take your next step in your life. Thanks for listening today. We hope that you'll tell everyone about our podcast, share it on your social media, tell others about it. We'll see you next time on Fearlessly Authentic.